This is VLX number 61. Jesus sends out his 12 apostles. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris et et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris et et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Christ is truly risen. Today's a great section of the Bible to look at in the Easter season because today Christ gives miraculous power to his apostles. Of course, VLX 60 a few weeks ago was also Matthew 10, and that's where Jesus calls his 12 apostles. But today, Jesus sends his 12 apostles. So even though Matthew 10 is obviously before the resurrection, and you are probably listening to this in the Easter season after the resurrection, there is still something of the power of Christ's resurrection given to the apostles in all the miracles they're supposed to do today. And by the way, you might be reading about these in Acts of the Apostles at Holy Mass. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. Now, I usually don't make this series a defense of the inerrancy of Scripture, but because part of the study way of prayer is study, of course, we need to consider some apparent contradictions between the different Gospels on what our Lord tells the apostles today, especially on the actual level of poverty they're supposed to execute in their lives. There seems to be some contradictions between Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. We're going to talk about that today. Because it appears at first glance that in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells them to, yes, affirmatively bring sandals and a staff. But today, if you were listening to what I just read, Matthew's Gospel, it seems to say they should not bring those two items. So we're going to find some stunning but believable explanations from the church fathers on this. Let's go verse by verse through today's pericope. Oh, and today would be a great day to take some notes in your Bible, but you'll also learn a lot if you're just doing this series on the go. Okay, verse 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Father Lapide says, The real reason for this was that Christ wanted his coming and his gospel to be preached first to the Jews. Okay, first is the key word there. In other words, not exclusively to the Jews by the end of the Apostles' course, of course. They're supposed to go to first the Jews and then later the Gentiles. Verse 7, 
and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we usually think of the kingdom as faith and sacraments as Catholics. We think of the kingdom as faith and sacraments, and and certainly that is true. But we also forget how much of this preaching is the apostles telling the people who are listening that this life is going to be suffering, suffering and love, love and suffering, and why you have to carry your cross. And a huge part of that is self-denial. It's not just accepting things, faith and sacraments. It's also self-denial. It was as though Christ said, In a short time I will, by my death, open heaven to men, which has been shut for so many thousands of years by Adam's sin, and I will open the entrance to it. Invite all, therefore, to take this way courageously, trampling down earthly desires so that they may enter into and gain the kingdom of heaven. A little bit later, he says, Each and every one ought to prepare himself to obtain the grace of this heavenly kingdom, which is now offered. And what a severe penalty awaits those who would refuse such a great grace or neglect it. Verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. There's almost a rhyming beat to that in the Greek, where the direct object comes before the imperative verb. Bear with me as I try to read you the Greek off my screen in the Cyrillic alphabet. Asthenuntas therapeute, necros agerite, lepros katharizete, daimonia ekbelate. So the formal equivalence in this case really captures the rhyme of what I just said. And I'm going to add M as in them, the short southern version of them, in place of them, not out of impiety to you, but so you can kind of catch the rhyme. So I guess I'm admittedly mixing a dynamic translation of my own to the formal equivalence. Weird mix here, but here's how I would translate this if I were a little less orthodox. The sick, heal them. The dead, raise them. The lepers, cleanse them. The demons, eject them. Freely all received, freely give. You can kind of catch that rhyme in there. So again, I don't mean that as an impious approach to the Bible, but there's that rhyme that I tried to capture there. The sick, heal them. The dead, raise them. The lepers, cleanse them. The demons, eject them. Freely all received, freely give. And even if that seems a little bit too rhymey, do realize that the direct object comes before the imperative verb there in the Greek. So anyway, why did Jesus give the apostles all the power of these miracles? Well, its main purpose, according to Father Lapide, is right here. For this reason, he gave them the power to cure bodily ills, so that thereby they might persuade men to believe in Christ, that their souls might be healed of unbelief. Now, that's not saying that these healings, the bodily healings, were superfluous. It doesn't even mean that these were untrue for the people who ended up not believing in Christ. But the ultimate goal of all these healings was for their souls to be healed, for them to believe in Christ. Which, by the way, you get if you go to baptism and if you sin after baptism confession. So that's really the goal of all this. Now, I sure hope God sends us saints who are doing miracles like Padre Pio. And remember, even for people who don't end up believing in Christ, these miracles are just purely gracious gifts of God, but ultimately, Father Lapide is saying, and I think this is in perfect reflection of Christ, the goal of all the bodily miracles, the goal of all the healing of the bodies is to heal our souls so we can go to heaven forever. Now, how about that interesting line, freely you have received, freely you are to give. Well, our Lord is telling them that they're given miracles not only to avoid the capital sin of greed, as most of you can probably guess, but also the capital sin of pride. This is what Father Lapide says right there. By using the expression freely received, Christ removes the occasion of pride since St. John Chrysostom says they know that they have not this power of themselves, but by God's free gift have received it without merit of their own. Likewise, the phrase freely give 
excludes all avarice and simony so that they might not sell their miracles for a price. So right there, Father Lapidate and St. John Chrysostom are saying that they were given these gifts basically outside of their merits because all these apostles left Jesus at his crucifixion except for John, and yet they're still given miracles, and they're supposed to give all these miracles without any payment. That should go without saying. The meaning is, therefore, that gift of healing the sick, raising the dead, is so great and so marvelous that you could never obtain it by your own efforts and industry. Rather, God has bestowed it freely upon you, and so you must use it freely. Not only must you not sell it for a price, but neither may you accept gifts offered to you for it. Father Lapide, being a Jesuit, also quotes St. Ignatius in the original Constitutions. He says, St. Ignatius, the founder of our society, in rule number 17, says, Let all who are under obedience to this society remember that they ought to give freely what they have received freely, neither asking nor accepting pay, nor any alms by which masses or confessions or sermons or any other offices whatsoever of the things which the society, means the Society of Jesus the Jesuits, according to our institution is able to exercise, may seem to be compensated, that thus it may be able to advance with greater freedom both in the divine service and the edification of our neighbors. And by the way, that's why if you look on my blog, I say don't take stipends for masses. I don't take stipends for masses because even though there's nothing wrong with that, the church allows it. There is a higher way of just avoiding any conflating of graces with money, which I do think harkens back to what our Lord says today. And verse 9, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Father Lapide says this about that, that they should follow the gospel wholeheartedly and direct all their thoughts and cares to preaching it, that they might give to all nations an illustrious example of simplicity, sobriety, poverty, contempt of riches, and of the sanctity of an exalted heavenly soul. By means of this angelic life, says St. John Chrysostom and Euthemius, they should draw all men to love and admire them. Nothing, says Euthemius, makes men so admirable as a frugal life content with whatever comes to hand. Now, there is a seeming contradiction that just before Christ's passion, Jesus does tell the apostles to not only take a money bag, but also, if you notice, a sword. That's kind of a shocking word. Listen closely to Luke 22. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, there are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So modern scripture scholars say that this, besides the fact they don't like our Lord and the apostles took swords, modern scripture scholars say, Well, right there, that's proof the Bible has errors in it because our Lord says in the beginning of one of these Gospels, or the midpoint where we are, Matthew 10, bring no little side satchel here in Matthew. But then he says, yes, you are to bring this little side satchel or money bag, however you want to translate it, in Luke. Well, there's an easy explanation, and it just comes down to two different missions. 
two different missions, and here's how Father Lapide explains that. The apostles, in going to the Gentiles, were preaching to infidels who were likely at first to be prejudiced against them as enemies of their gods, and who would not deign to give them food and hospitality until they had brought the faith to them by miracles and the sanctity of their life. Therefore, before they could persuade them to believe, they had to provide themselves with the means of living, especially as they were often accompanied by a large number of catechists, interpreters, and other helpers. So what Father Lapid and the fathers are saying right there is originally Christ told them to take no little side satchel for money because the Jews would provide food as they were doing miracles and preaching the gospel. But once they got to faraway lands like James in Spain or Thomas in India, there would be so much hostility, they might have to have a little bit something on them at times. And just so you know that Father Lapide is always based on the fathers and the doctors, he quotes St. Thomas Aquinas here, before the Passion, the apostles were sent to the Jews. The custom among the Jews, moreover, was that they were obliged to provide for their teachers. Therefore, Christ commanded the apostles to take nothing with them when he was sent to the Jews. But this was not the custom among the Gentiles. Thus, when he sent them to the Gentiles, permission was given them to bring money. Therefore, they carried purses when they preached to people other than the Jews. So that right there reconciles Matthew chapter 10 with Luke chapter 22. Now, we also have to realize, though, there are some people through history, some saints through history, take this literally. In fact, a lot of the saints take it absolutely literally to have nothing on them. Others take a little something. St. Francis of Assisi was one of those who took absolutely nothing. Father Lapide says this about his life. St. Francis of Assisi, during Mass in the church of San Damiano, heard the gospel read in which Christ, while sending his disciples out to preach, determine the form of the evangelical way of life, that is, that they should not have gold, nor money, in their purses, nor scrip along the way, nor two tunics, nor shoes, nor walking staff. After Mass, he asked that these things be explained to him more clearly, after which he was filled with incredible joy. This, he said, is what I desire. This is what I yearn for with all my heart. This was the beginning. This was the cause of his conversion. At that moment, he undertook to emulate apostolic poverty, and so the disciple of Christ immediately put all these things into practice so as to devote himself completely to Christ and the gospel and to conform himself to his ways. Therefore, he removed the shoes from his feet, put down his staff, threw away his script, renounced money, was content with one tunic, put off his belt, and put on a rope instead, and so he did for his whole life. This is related by St. Bonaventure in chapter 3 on the life of St. Francis of Assisi. So right there you do have some saints who take that literally and are called to do so. Verse 10, Jesus tells them to have no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Now, here is another seemingly troublesome contradiction because Jesus himself had two garments if last week you read the Passion of St. John closely. John chapter 19 verse 23 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. So right there we have the plural garments, and then we hear that that's divided, probably the seamless garment that Mary made, and then also his tunic is mentioned. Okay, so he told them to have only one, but he had two himself? No. Father Lapide explains that Christ did indeed have an inner garment, and an outer coat. He actually calls it shirt and coat in the translation, or whoever translated Lapide. And St. Thomas Aquinas says Christ here in Matthew 10 was prohibiting 
changes of the same piece of clothing. In other words, you don't need two coats, but you can have a shirt and a coat. And Christ obviously fulfills this himself at his passion as he's stripped of two different items. You see how there's easy explanations to these seeming contradictions in the Bible? Obviously, the snooty moderns with PhDs who speak probably one language, maybe two, are not as smart as the ancients who spoke five or ten languages. Okay, another weird but important one for our study is that today Jesus said to wear no sandals, but then in Mark chapter 6, verse 9, Christ charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Well, Father Lapide looks at two or three definitions of footwear in Greek, and to put it in modern translations, he shows that Christ is prohibiting shoes in Matthew, but promoting sandals in Mark. I know it's going to sound weird, but I'm going to prove it. Christ is prohibiting shoes in Matthew, but promoting sandals in Mark. Shoes being in the Greek, hupodemata, and sandals being sandalia, obviously the root word for our English sandals there, sandalia. In fact, the word sandalia in Greek is exactly what the angel tells St. Peter to put on in Acts of the Apostles when he breaks him out of jail. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Sandalia literally in Acts 12, 8 there. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And then Peter leaves the jail. St. Augustine caught that amazing difference between shoes and sandals there, and he wrote, Mark says they were to be shod with sandals, by which the foot is neither covered above nor yet bare on the ground. For verily it was the Lord's will that the gospel should neither be hid nor yet that it should be conducted according to earthly advantages. So see, moderns say this stuff doesn't really matter. Shoes, sandals, doesn't really matter. Not only did the ancients push against any accusations of seeming contradictions, they even found meaning in the differences between these Gospels. And then how about that staff? There's another seeming contradiction. Today in Matthew 10.10, Jesus says, Don't bring a rabdon. That's the Greek, rabdon or rabdon. But in Mark again, Mark chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says they should bring a staff. Listen again to what we just heard from Mark. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Okay, so which one is it, Matthew or Mark? Of course, the fathers see no contradiction. Why? Because they knew the Greek words that came from the Hebrew. This is what Father Lapide says of the Hebrew. You will object. Mark 6, 8 says the contrary is staff only. I reply, Mark is speaking, and here he gives some Hebrew. We don't do a lot of Hebrew on this channel. Mark is speaking of the mishkan, a rod or a staff on which to lean. For this was the symbol of poor travelers who relieved their weariness by leaning on a staff. This was how Jacob journeyed to Mesopotamia in Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. But Matthew is here speaking of the mate, that is, a rod for defense or punishment. This was what Christ forbade his apostles to carry. Okay, so easy explanation there. There was something in the ancient days that basically a staff was a weapon. You could poke people. I think later in Lapide talks about teachers prodding students with it hit people on the head, push them away. It was a defense weapon. The mate in Hebrew was a defense weapon. That's the word that Jesus is using in Matthew 10 today to tell the apostles they should not carry one of those. But in Mark, that word in Greek is probably based on the Hebrew michan, which is a staff. 
if you've ever walked the, say, Camino of Santiago, you see people who are walking with staffs in their arms. Sometimes these are like um, titanium and sometimes they're wood, but no one's poking each other and hitting each other with that on the Camino. These are just walking staffs. So in short, you're allowed a walking staff, but not a weapon to poke people with. Let's continue into verses 12 to 14. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. So did you notice that word worthy? Worthy is in there twice. Now, today we all sound pretty sarcastic in the face of that word worthy. But we're really acting sarcastic in the face of ancient wisdom when we say something silly like, well, wouldn't my home not be worthy because I know the saints wouldn't find my dysfunctional family worthy? Or maybe with like an overabundance on the other side of the coin with kind of a fake humility, we might say, well, nobody's worthy because everyone is unworthy in God's eyes. Okay, there's a little truth to that. And that sounds pious, but remember, it doesn't line up with today's gospel very well because the fact is that Jesus just did assert that some homes were worthy. His word's not mine. Jesus said some homes are worthy and some are not. So let's not pretend like we know better than Christ's own command to his apostles. In fact, that word in the Greek there for worthy is axios, and that's still yelled out today at Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox ordinations for the candidate, the man who's going to be ordained a priest. If they find him worthy, they yell axios in Greek still to this day. St. Jerome gives us a great insight why the apostles wanted to stay in the homes not of people with ill repute, but of good repute. Quote, a host should be chosen for his reputation among the people and from his character with his neighbors, lest the worthiness of preaching be besmirched by the infamy of the preacher's host. End quote. So, you know, let's remember that Christ spent his time with sinners, but never with them while they were sinning. Same with his apostles. And how about this line about the peace returning upon them? Father Lapide does note the personification Peace is here introduced as a person rejected by the host and going elsewhere and bringing the apostles with him. If the host rejects your salutation of peace, your salutation shall not therefore be unfruitful, for there shall come to yourselves what you prayed for him, that is, peace and all prosperity. Thus shall your peace, repulsed by this unworthy host, come back to you and lead you to some worthy host. Okay, there's a few things in there. So the Greek there is epistrophato. Epistrophato means let it return. So there's a real visual. You send the peace out and it comes right back around if it is supposed to land on this family that it is not a peaceful family or doesn't even want your peace. The Greek there, epistrapho, almost implies it goes out and comes right back on you and it blesses you again. So this is what the apostles are doing. They're going into homes, sending the very peace of Christ. Remember it said peace is a, is a person there. They're sending the peace of Christ, almost as Christ himself. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the imaginative way. And it comes back on them, blesses them if, it, if this was landing on someone who wasn't peaceful. And it leads you to a more worthy host. Now, I think there's three things we can learn on evangelization here. One, keep your peace, even if you're talking to somebody that doesn't want to hear it. Two, don't compromise. And three, don't beg for them to listen. We want them to listen. We should pray that people listen. We should fast and be on our knees because we want everyone to go to heaven. But the apostles didn't act desperate. Did you notice that? They kept their peace. They didn't compromise the truth. And they didn't beg people to accept them. 
They trusted the right doors would open at the right time. And how about this weird line, shake the dust off from your feet? Well, St. John Chrysostom says, they testify that for their sakes they had made a long journey and that it had profited them nothing. In other words, this is a statement, it's a prophetic witness to these towns that reject the apostles. They're anathema, and yet ye will have nothing, not even their dust in common with them as being doomed to eternal condemnation. That this dust which we have shaken off may be a witness in the day of judgment against their unbelief and wickedness, and may accuse them in the presence of Christ, that he may find them liable to the fires of hell. Thus Barnabas and Paul shook the dust from their feet when they were turned away by the Jews at Antioch in Pisidia. So you don't want the apostles kicking their dust off after you. It means that you're on your way to hell. And I know this has been a long one. Last verse to look at before we do the imaginative way of prayer. Verse 15, Amen, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Father Lapide says, You will ask how this can be true since sodomy is a very grave crime contrary to nature and crying to heaven. For in other respects, it is certain that there are worse sins than sodomy, such as heresy, infidelity, blasphemy, sacrilege, despair, hatred of God. Now here's why he explains that Christ said this was even worse to reject the apostles than that horrible sin we just heard about in Sodom and Gomorrah. Those, therefore, who rejected the apostles, and in so doing rejected the faith, grace, and salvation of Christ, sinned far worse than the Sodomites, and that not by a single but by a manifold sin, to wit, one, of infidelity, two, of disobedience, three, of ingratitude, four, of inhospitality, five, of rebellion and contumacy against God, contrary to natural and divine law. Now, Father Lapidus is not jumping on board with the modern scripture scholars who say the main sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not hospitality. He's saying that was one of the many things that they're going to answer to God for was inhospitality to the apostles. But he is saying that heresy is worse than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. As the Sodomites were punished by fire and brimstone from heaven, so will these be punished by fire and brimstone in hell only far more severely Because if the Sodomites had heard the preaching of Christ and the apostles and had seen their miracles, they would have believed and repented, as Christ says in chapter 11, verse 23. Let's do the imaginative way of prayer on verse 12 and 13 today. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Okay, we just heard Father Lapide say peace was a person. They are carrying Christ in their hearts to the utmost level that any saint besides Mary, Joseph, and apparently Anna and Joachim could have been carrying in their hearts. So you're looking, when you look into the eyes of the apostles, you're sort of looking into the eyes of heaven without sounding corny. This is what Father Lapide says. The Syriac is pray for peace upon. He's talking about Jews would go to homes and pray for peace. But this isn't just like a romanticized view of say, the Old Testament. I know there's a lot of people with a romanticized view of, of everything that Jews are doing today. And I have Jewish friends. I called a rabbi last week to get help on this series. Um, but there's a weird obsession with kind of the charismatic side of that without realizing the apostles fulfilled this while having everything crowned and infused with grace. But they still were Jews. Most of these apostles were Jews. And so this is very beautiful. The Syriac, pray for peace upon it. This was the ancient salutation among the Hebrews. So again, without getting super romanticized about the Old Covenant and we have the New Covenant, they would have said shalom as they entered. Pray for peace upon it. This was the ancient salutation among the Jews by which they prayed for the peace and prosperity. For the latter brings peace and removes the causes of war. 
for the master of the house and his family. The Hebrews understood it of temporal blessings, but Christ of spiritual, namely grace, salvation, glory, and eternal happiness. For Christ came to the world to make peace between God, man, and the angels. Therefore, when he was born, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. So what I'm going to have you do in the imaginative way today is imagine one of the apostles come to your door, literally the door where you live. Maybe you want to pick the apostle he did last week, maybe a different apostle, and realize he brings all, not just like a little blessing, but all of the blessing of Christ and his entire church to your door with this word, shalom. Imagine answering the door and one of those apostles, and it wasn't just like he had a nice smile and, and you kind of felt peaceful and warm in his presence. No, he brought this cloud of grace, salvation, glory, and eternal happiness, according to Father Lapidae. This atmosphere of heaven followed them. Yeah, probably the apostles looked at the ground, probably when you answer the door, perhaps he's keeping custody eyes, even looking at the ground. Maybe he's a bit ragged, but not sloppy poor, because imagine the few times he looks up at you, there'd be fire in his eyes. Was this the atmosphere of heaven around them that was 20 meters in diameter or 50 meters or 100 meters wide? I'm not saying, of course, you could see it, but you could feel it. You know, there were people who had been around a Catholic culture their whole life in Spain, but when they saw St. Teresa of Avila for the first time, you had all these sinners convert. When she would enter a new town, people would look at St. Teresa of Avila, who had been to Mass and maybe even confession many times, I can't explain why they could have attended Mass, but then seen Teresa of Avila and convert, maybe because she was like the earth that captured the atmosphere and the Mass was the sun, but it only works if you actually have an atmosphere that can catch it. Well, these apostles were capturing the atmosphere of the sun and bringing that everywhere. So imagine if just looking at Teresa of Avila could convert these people who were very far from Christ. Imagine meeting an apostle at your door. This was efficacious, not just effective, but efficacious to anyone of goodwill as they entered. This is why there were conversions so rapidly in the early church. St. John Chrysostom says this, The salutation of the apostles was not merely a verbal one, but a real and efficacious blessing, with the power of conferring upon their host, if it were worthy, actual peace, that is to say, grace, faith, and salvation. So imagine one of the apostles comes to your door and peace enraptures your home. Again, St. John Chrysostom adds that this salutation of the apostles was not merely a verbal one, but a real and efficacious blessing with the power of conferring upon their host, if he be worthy, actual peace, that is to say grace, faith, and salvation. Imagine a doorbell ring that brings your family actual peace grace, faith, and salvation. Imagine asking him to come in, sit him down, give him some water, and ask him how he can teach you to love our Lord more and perhaps tell you about his life. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos, et mania semper. Amen. <laughs>